0: Hello and welcome to Insights, a podcast from Understanding Society, the study that captures life in the UK in the 21st century. Understanding Society is a longitudinal survey. Every year we ask each member of thousands of the same households across the UK about different aspects of their life. In each episode of this series, we're exploring how our data has been used in a key area. We'll look at what we found, what it tells us and what we can learn from it. I'm your host, Catherine MacDonald, and in this episode, we're looking at the tension between commuting and working from home, and the role both play in transport policy now and in the future. Here to discuss this are Dr. Daniel Wheatley from the Department of Management at the University of Birmingham, Dr. Kieran Chatterjee, Professor of Travel Behaviour at the University of the West of England, and Pete Dyson a Principal Behavioural Scientist at the Department for Transport and speaking today in a personal capacity. So Daniel, I'm just going to come straight to you. The pandemic has accelerated the emergence of hybrid working with workers in certain sectors now dividing their time between working from home and working from the office. So what has your research told us about the overall effects of that in terms of both productivity and the work-life balance?
1: So I guess to begin with, it's useful to contextualise the last couple of years. So statistics show us that around 20% of all employees were working at home on a fairly regular basis, even prior to the pandemic. So it's useful context to think about that, because it helps inform our understanding what the benefits are, and also what the challenges are. So in terms of benefits, I mean, you mentioned two the potential productivity benefits, well, there are caveats to that, and I'll explain that shortly, work-life balance, formed around the benefits associated with being able to mold your time and the way you work and alter your routines to your own individual needs to a degree. Going back to productivity benefits, there's a really interesting dimension of this because there's been research that's evidenced significant productivity benefits, at least in the short term for people who are working from home. Part of that benefit and where we have to understand this carefully is part of that benefit may actually be from people working longer hours. So Trading off time that used to be spent commuting, and instead using that time now to work, so start work earlier and perhaps finish later, and so the productivity, in a sense of a kind of old-fashioned sense of hourly productivity, it may not have increased at all. It may just be that people are working longer. In terms of other benefits, I think extending the kind of work-life balance benefits, the potential benefits to kind of job satisfaction, engagement with work. Other aspects of employee well-being, uh, they're all linked to those kind of work-life balance, greater control and autonomy over work aspects of this. But there are also lots of challenges, feelings of isolation, being detached from the workplace and colleagues and co-workers, having to deal with identifying and allocating a space to work, which for some people might be very easy, but for other people might be very difficult and associated it difficulties with things like potential invasion of privacy, where workers are monitored closely in terms of their levels of engagement and time spent working through technologies that can do that type of thing, but also in terms of potential risks of loss of progression in careers for people where they're working from home and others aren't, so they're kind of being seen to not be present, where you have that kind of mix of different working routines. So there's quite a lot in that. and that's why, of course, as with many of these different areas, it's something that's continued to be understood and something that's really kind of an emerging area of our understanding.
0: And have you, in your research, noticed whether there are gender differences in the way people are experiencing flexible or hybrid working and age differences?
1: If we go back to the pandemic, of course, one of the things that was a really interesting kind of component, and obviously, you know, we have to caveat. Anything that we say is interested about the pandemic because it was a serious situation. But one of the interesting things about that period was that, from a very kind of social experiment perspective, there was a real return to a lot of traditional gender roles in a lot of households. When children were suddenly having to be homeschooled, it was much more common for the female partners in a household to take on that responsibility. And regardless of what, in principle, was a lead or secondary career or however you identified within a household, I guess, whose job is more important in the short term if we were prioritising things, there was a real gender distinction there. Um, When we look at patterns of home working and remote working and hybrid working more generally, it's not as clearly cut as that period of kind of extreme understanding that we may have had that may well have been kind of a one-off to a degree as well evidence instead suggests that experiences can be quite similar again it's much more down to perhaps household dynamics rather than it being related to broad patterns in society when we think about age as well I mean we could headline it by saying that familiarity and ability associated with certain digital technologies might make some kind of age divide here that might mean it's more or less suitable for homework. And I think a lot of those kind of headlines are not really that valid anymore. And when we start trying to make those kind of broad brush statements, often they miss the point in that there's a lot of Subtle differences among subgroups of society that drive often a lot of these differences rather than the big headlines. So, I guess in short, the answer is those differences are not so distinct, not so considerable. Preferences for the use of, of remote and home working may be different, though, and some of that is still driven by societal norms. So, gender norms, for example, meaning it's more likely for women to take on childcare responsibilities. And that impacting the beginning and end of the working day, that might mean that then home working or hybrid working is more desirable at certain points during the career. So there can be those kind of social norms that drive certain preferences and differences in working patterns.
0: So what's coming across loud and clear here is that there is a lot to work out if we're to get the flexible and hybrid working, sort of new normal, working well for everyone. But even if we were to achieve that, where does that leave the sectors who are unable to work from home simply because they have, you know, what we came to know as frontline jobs during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, one of the biggest challenges is that potential for what could be seen as some kind of discriminatory differences in availability of forms of flexible working arrangements like remote and hybrid working. Organisations in different sectors are having to really look at this in different ways and how they can approach forms of flexible working for their workforces. In some jobs, it's simply not possible to have someone work from home. In other jobs, it might be very difficult to make a hybrid routine actually work practically because of necessity of having people available at certain times and availability in the sense of physical presence in a particular place.
0: Kieran, I'd like to bring you in here to sort of move on to talk about commuting, because whether we're hybrid working, flexible working, there will be an element of commute for a lot of people still. And obviously that will have to evolve as well. So your research looked at the subjective well-being of over 26,000 workers living in England. What did that tell us about commuting and the effects it has on people?
2: The detailed information that's available each year from Understanding Society on the lives of thousands of individuals allowed us to analyze how different dimensions of well-being are affected by commuting circumstances. And noting that this data was pre-pandemic, which I think raises some issues we can make on onto later, we found how people get to work and how long it takes them to get to work affects well-being in a number of different ways. Longer journeys, in terms of duration, affect well-being in terms of reducing job satisfaction reducing leisure time satisfaction, higher strain in people's lives, and lower mental health. And it's incremental each additional minute of commuting worsens all of these aspects of well-being. The particularly large effect we found for leisure time satisfaction and for job satisfaction, and with job satisfaction, our explanation is that commuting is perceived as work-related Hence, the commute is taken into account when people consider whether a job is satisfying or not. And we also consider that commute stress, which is well known to increase with commute time, may spill over into work time, not just the experience during the commute, but it may spill over into people's feelings once they arrive at work or arrive home. So it ultimately affects job satisfaction. We did also, however, find that longer commute times were not found to have a large impact on life satisfaction overall. And this is because We observe that people are taking on longer commutes for good reasons, relating to improving their employment situation or their housing and family situations. And those factors serve to um, increase life satisfaction.
0: And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I noticed your analogy that when it comes to job satisfaction, that an extra 20 minutes commuting a day is equal to a 19% pay cut. That's considerable, isn't it?
2: So a 19% pay cut, that's a pay cut typically of around £4,000 per year for a worker in England. And we believe that that finding deserves to be taken seriously by employers and by planners as well, and even the government. If employers can help their staff to have shorter journeys to work, then this will improve job satisfaction and aid staff retention and potentially contribute to the national challenge we face on productivity.
0: And what about the mode of transport? What did you find depending on how people were doing their commute?
2: We saw that walking and cycling are beneficial compared to driving. For the same journey time, those workers that walk and cycle are more satisfied with their leisure time. These active ways of getting to work are presumably then therefore seen as providing worthwhile use of time. So we had that positive finding around walking and cycling and that's um, borne out in the wider studies from other data sets all around the world. With respect to public transport, we found negative impacts compared to driving when it comes to longer bus journeys. If a bus journey increases in the same way that a car journey does, then it will have a more adverse impacts on well-being. But in contrast to that, with rail and metro journeys, we found actually the shorter the journey was there was an association with a deterioration in well-being. And we think that's because on the longer rail and metros journeys, there's more chance of getting a seat. And for those longer distance journeys, it's, it's easier to make yourself comfortable and use the time you spend well. So that, there's some interesting subtle findings there on, on mode of transport. We did also have a look at um, working from home as a way of working and way of accessing work. And we found those who normally work from home have higher job satisfaction. And I do state that is those who say they normally work from home, because we don't know about um, those who occasionally work from home, about what that means for their um, job satisfaction and wider well-being. We would expect for those people there would still be some benefit from not going to the workplace every day, and perhaps the, the variation would play out even better. But data collection needs to evolve in this area to reflect the greater flexibility and variability in people's working
0: patterns. Absolutely. It's such a complex picture, isn't it? People's work and work-life balance today. And did you notice anything as well, just as I sort of asked Daniel, about gender differences or are the younger generations behaving differently?
2: We did find that women's job satisfaction is affected slightly more than men's by longer journeys. And with regard to younger workers, we found they were less affected, actually, than older workers We've interpreted that that as in terms of young people perhaps being happier to be having a job and focusing on their career and being prepared to put in the time to get to work, accepting that as a basis for uh, developing their career and earnings. But separately to examining the relationship between commuting and well-being, we know that young people's transport use has changed a lot in the last couple of decades. They're driving much less than previous generations of young people. And this issue is something we've also been able to shed light on using understanding society data. We found that for young people, being in full-time employment or gaining employment was strongly linked to them obtaining a driving licence. We've also saw that stable employment across multiple years was a strong determinant in becoming a regular car driver. We also found that family wealth played a role in being able to get a driving licence. So this analysis, combined with what We also know about wider socio-demographic trends, provides strong evidence that the fall in recent generations of young people's use of the car has been influenced by long-term social change, where the age at which people typically start working and have stable jobs, stable incomes, and begin relationships and have children, those have been getting later. And that's playing out in terms of their mobility in, in driving. That has conflicting implications, though. It's important that policies in transport and other sectors reflect this fall in the proportion of young people with a driving license or access to a car. And that change in young people's travel behaviour is to be welcomed in one sense, in that it aligns with our aims to reduce the adverse effects of transport use. But on the other hand, it's important that young people have alternatives to the car. Otherwise, there could be damaging effects on their life opportunities and well-being. We need to look more at the lack of mobility rather than too much mobility or too much commuting. And whether this lack of uh, mobility is affecting opportunities and well-being
0: over the longer term for young people. Not an easy task at all, is it? Right. So, Pete, I'd like to bring you in here. What are your reactions to the findings from Daniel and Kieran?
3: When I hear both pieces of research, I do reflect back on how useful and vitally important this would have been what is now about two and a half years ago as the COVID pandemic ensued. I think this quality of research on understanding how people's lives could be lived and how many people could work from home would have been phenomenally useful. And it probably is testament to the importance of research that's done rapidly and ensuring that our findings are shared with the people that need them. You asked about my reflections, and uh, I have struck from Daniel by what we call heterogeneous effects, so just how different people's different circumstances are, the way in which some people... Stand to gain and adapt well to a working from home environment and other people, it's the other way around. It's really, really important to understand how a given strain can have very different effects on different people's situations. On Kieran's work, it's so impressive and really refreshing to see how we can connect data sets together and understand transport behaviors in their wider context of how it affects well-being, health, access to employment. Uh, It affects people of different generations. I can't overstate how often we become siloed in the work that we conduct, particularly across industry and policy, where people, for instance, within transport uh, look purely at transport issues and don't get that wider perspective. There were a couple of things that I thought I'd really like to know a bit more about. I think where research is able to find out how people's lives have been lived, it would be brilliant to understand a bit more of what people want. I think there's a danger sometimes that we see people's behaviour and we think that they chose to do that. Whereas, of course, this has shone a light on the fact that many people's lives are pushed in a particular direction. So it'd be great to also balance understand what people are wanting out of a, a working uh, relationship. We didn't hear as much about spatial effects, and from a transport policy perspective, I know it's been of great interest to understand the places that have, say, gained locally, where people have stayed more local, and um, the neighbourhoods that have flourished, but also the hollowing out of um, other neighbourhoods. Certainly during the pandemic, we saw city centres hollowed out, and that spatial element would be great to understand a little bit more about. And finally, I think when we look at the pros and cons of a dynamic or a balanced work-from-home um, hybrid working environment, we should probably look at the extent to which it affects a household as well. I'm struck by the importance within a family unit or a couple living together, that um, you're really solving a sort of coordination and a cooperation problem by perhaps one person being able to have access to employment much further away than would have been previously possible if they can work remotely. I think that's probably, we're only at the Uh, cusp of finding out how that plays out. It might obviously have labelled people for whom they wouldn't have otherwise been able to gain employment, uh, to work, say, flexibly or part-time. So that will be interesting to see how that plays out.
0: Kieran, Daniel, would you like to respond to the points that Pete has made there? Daniel, if I could come to you first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess there's a number of different things that are happening at the minute that, of course play into this big debate, discussion, whatever we want to call it, about what work is going to look like moving forward. And we've seen a, a very recent development with the civil service as a good example, where, where they're considering the use of uh, application of uh, monitoring technologies, considering mandated requirements for people to be present at an office. So what we're seeing in essence, and we're seeing similar things from other employees, and it's just one example. What we see in essence is quite a divergence in perspectives where some employers are embracing hybrid and flexible working and focusing on and emphasizing the benefits that can potentially be had by that. Other employers are concerned by things that they've seen in terms of the evidence around potential misuse of company time or difficulties in coordinating activities and functioning as an operation. So, we're seeing quite diverse perspectives and we're seeing developments moving all the time. And this, of course, has knock on effects for patterns of commuting, for transport networks. It has knock on effects, as Pete just mentioned, for city centres, for other hubs of activities, where as businesses that rely on footfall and movements of others for work have been impacted and will continue to be impacted by these changes. One of the things I think the mentioned, which is really important in understanding and moving forward here, is how we collect data on people's movements. And um, the work of Richard Shearmer, for example, up in Canada, has been looking at how we can capture people's time spent in different locations for work as a way of understanding the frequency of commuting, as a way of understanding the frequency of working from home versus working from an employer premises. And by capturing that data in more effective ways, in ways that are more suitable to modern and contemporary movements for work, that's going to really help us gain more insight into what the impacts of these different forms and patterns of work are. And in doing so, of course, inform future policy and practice.
0: Kieran, how would you respond to that?
2: Pete mentioned the rapid research that was um, carried out, including by the Department for Transport during the pandemic, with a six-wave survey, which tracked the travel behaviour of a large sample of individuals during the pandemic. And that was really vital to shine a light on what was happening during that period. And um, I think we'll be learning a lot from that. On the other hand, we will have this um, long adaptation period beyond the pandemic and i think many of the um, data sources such as understanding society that have been long running will put us in good stead to look how things shake out post the pandemic the other point was about um yeah it's very important in the area of um, employment work and commuting to look at aggregate spatial change while some of the work that daniel and i've been mentioning has been looking at individual level change in working from home and commuting somehow we need to find a way of combining the insights from both of those, the aggregate and the disaggregate. So that remains um, a challenge we need to grapple with to truly understand what's going on, look at the big picture, but also the detailed picture of how lives are changing.
0: Thank goodness for longitudinal research (laughs) in the hope that it can do that then. So Pete, bearing all of this in mind, what are the main priorities for transport policy in the UK today? That feels like a huge question.
3: Yeah, it is a huge question because transport intersects with so many other priorities. There are a set of objectives that are published. They broadly, for these purposes, settle around three areas of um, improving transport for the user, of reducing inequalities, or as a term often used, levelling up. And then thirdly, to reduce environmental impacts caused by transport. Uh, so there would be three useful, workable priority areas for which specific new technologies, or new developments would be assessed.
0: And in your book, Transport for Humans, which you co-authored with Rory Sutherland, you talk about Homo transporticus. Can you tell us about him and the warnings we need to take from him?
3: It's a representative agent, and it's the assumption that people travelling will know where the routes are, will understand the prices and tariffs, will make calculated decisions around journey time, and dependability, or even understand the punctuality and reliability for the journey that they're interested in. So we create this character, Homo transporticus, just as a reminder that sometimes or oftentimes we can walk into assumptions about who the user is. And as we've already heard about today, the users of transport are a much more diverse set of users. We should encompass a much broader range of wants and needs capabilities.
0: And the next obvious question, and again, not an easy one, and I don't know if, if it has an answer, You know, how do we do that?
3: I think we do that through social research. We do that through um, application of uh, behavioural science. It is staggering how little is actually known about uh, the uses of transport. There's a set of um, small examples which help bring that to life. I mean, when you buy a train ticket, traditionally you've had a little orange ticket in the UK with a magnetic strip. Someone might expect that that data might feed in about usage of the rail network, but that magnetic strip merely operates the ticket gates, and that information uh, doesn't go any further. So almost uh, broadly, the the most detailed understanding of rail users is done from a very comprehensive but one-day-per-year survey of users where that data isn't connected to their other travel needs, so very cross-sectional in nature. Uh, So through broader application of social research methods we would gain much greater insight into travel behaviours.
0: So this feels like a topic that there would be so much more to discuss but I'd like to put a final question to the three of you. Obviously we've spoken about commuting in terms of working from home and hybrid and flexible working but obviously I'm aware that the context is much broader with climate change and cost of petrol and fuel and so, my question is Do we think hybrid slash flexible working is here to stay? And if so, what are the, the top priorities moving forward when it comes to looking at what we need to do to commuting? And, Daniel, if I could come to you first, please.
1: Hybrid and flexible working should be here to stay. It's not just a byproduct of the pandemic, it's something that's been gradually increasing more and more prominent form of work. And if we think about just resituating work in the sense of what we consider to be work, when historically we might think of work as a kind of nine to five at an employer's premise, that's not what we think of work as anymore, at least not for a large portion of society. And, And certainly in terms of what workers are demanding, they're demanding something that looks much more flexible, much more tailored to their own needs. I think that the priorities are improved data capture and, of course, that surveys like Understanding Society are excellent sources of understanding on these themes. But we need to keep adapting and collecting new and different forms of data that help provide more and more insight into this. And attached to that need for data is the need for good social research that explores these themes and draws out understanding that can inform policy and practice I think the other priority is on the employer and employee relationship side. Both these parties need to really understand and talk to each other about what they want. It shouldn't be that an employer needs a researcher like me to tell them what their own workforce want. Employers do need to speak to their own workforce and understand what they want and what they need and how that relationship moves forward is integral to getting the best out of that relationship. So if, if those two parties, employers and employees, can come up with a solution that works for their business. That's surely better than having some broad brush kind of policies that, while can be very important as a minimum standard, often require heavy levels of tailoring to really suit anyone at any point in time.
0: And Kieran, what would you say? Regarding um, hybrid working
2: and what the future holds, I want to think about a pessimistic and an optimistic um, interpretation of the future. A pessimistic one would suggest that um, flexibility in where work is carried out mainly applies to high paid jobs in the knowledge economy. There's a risk that working practice will become less equitable and work travel less sustainable, perhaps more reliance on car use. I mean, we may see peak period of congestion become less severe an issue, but then we might find that public transport services are withdrawn in the peak period due to fewer passengers, and that might have an effect on low-paid workers who lack the means to get to work. I think if we leave things to the market, um, businesses and property developers, they won't provide the workplaces and housing that's desired, necessary to support low-carbon mobility patterns and equity in the future. An optimistic, though, interpretation is that this... Um, Big shift in the acceptability, normalisation of working from home means that um, we've now had rapid development of systems to facilitate this, and more people are happy with the areas where they live and doing things locally, and more positive about their neighbourhood. So, in that more positive um, scenario, the pandemic has accelerated pre-pandemic trends, as Daniel was suggesting, and it's led to this shift in how work is performed from almost all sectors of the economy. And what we need to do is grasp the opportunity of this to contribute to deep carbon reductions from transport and to improve equity and health outcomes in general. And this is going to require carefully directed policy interventions and not leaving things entirely for the market, but very much steering of of the market. And that, that I believe, is the key requirement we face today and it has great rewards if we can grapple successfully with that.
0: And Pete, final word to you then. Yes, I think Kieran's uh,
3: diagnosis is extremely incisive. Priorities for hybrid working are to really understand the environmental impacts of what a hybrid working environment looks like, whether that changes people's travel pattern and diet on a weekly or monthly basis of reducing environmental impacts, or whether people simply leverage it, live further away, travel further distances. Maintain the same sort of travel budget in order to access work further away. And then it would be important, but outside of this transport sector, to understand how employers are going to support people in working uh, in that in home environment, how there's going to be continuous professional development, training, a working environment that enables people to stay for quite a long time within a job because there's a risk that in a way work becomes much more transactional and a lot easier to shift between jobs so we see much higher churn which would be probably we would say would be a shame but you know the longitudinal studies will um, will be the best source of answering that question.
0: My thanks to Dr Daniel Wheatley, Dr Kieran Chatterjee and Pete Dyson. You can find out more about how the data from Understanding Society is changing practice and informing policy by visiting the website understandingsociety.ac.uk. This was a Research Podcast production. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts.